So that was my approach. It was just trying to be flexible, trying to think of it as a system, being open to what's in front of you and kind of running with it organically almost. Welcome to the Life Story Coach podcast, where you'll hear interviews, tips and advice on the craft and business of personal history and life story writing with your host, Amy Woods Butler. friends, welcome back. And as usual, if you're new to the show, this is where we talk about growing our business as life story professionals. We're in the business to help clients write and record their life story and other legacy projects for their family and friends and for their descendants. And today, Peter Roberts, a fellow life story professional from Silicon Valley, is here to join us. Actually, you're going to hear right away that she's not originally from Silicon Valley. So welcome, Peter. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your show. Oh, I'm so happy to have you here. Quick introduction. Peta's been a writer for over 25 years, and she got into personal history through a very large oral history project that focused on the migration of a group of people from, okay, stay with me here, from Wales to Argentina to Australia. There were 65 people interviewed from 15 different families. Peta has been living in Silicon Valley for the last 18 years, where she migrated from Australia. And as a personal historian, she helps people do it all. She helps them digitize images, create video documentaries. She helps them write their memoirs. Um, and Peta also has a weekly podcast, Storycle, where she introduces personal historians and the work they do. So Welcome to the Life Story Coach podcast, Peter. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got started in the life story business? Well, as you pointed out, I have had experience in a large oral history project about the Welsh who came from Wales to Argentina and then to Australia. I was, um, when I was growing up, I was told by my father that my grandfather was born in a tribe of Indians, as politically incorrect as that is. Uh, that was the term he used. And when I was um, planning to go climbing in the Andes after meeting an Argentinian ski guide, I thought, hmm, what is there to this story about my grandfather being born in some tribe? I wonder where the tribe is. And as it happened, before I left, I looked at my father's birth certificate and it named the town in Argentina where my grandfather was born. So before the, um, before the trek into the Andes, I decided to visit the town and serendipitously got caught up in publishing a complete genealogical index of all the Welsh in Argentina from the time they arrived in 1865 to 1900. Really all I wanted was my grandfather's birth certificate. So I went to the civil registry and somehow talked my way in with no Spanish much at all. I'd been in Argentina for like two weeks I managed to sit there for two weeks and copy out birth, death and marriage records. And then I tracked down the people who originally had the first records of births, deaths and marriages from 1865 uh, and spoke to people when I was in Buenos Aires. Um, I looked up uh, ships' registers and then I found census data and because I had a round-the-world ticket when I was in England, I went to the ship's registries there uh, to find out more details about that. So that was uh, an index that got published. Um, once that was published, uh, an historian from Deakin University in Melbourne, Michelle Langfield, she picked up my research 
and suggested that we um, get together and document all the Welsh Patagonians who'd come to Australia. I thought my group was the only one. So we tracked down 65 individuals from 15 families. And lo and behold, I'm related to absolutely none of them. None of them (laughs) knew about my family. It was all in vain. But I did get to document the other Welsh Patagonians. We interviewed people. We had chapters that were based on each family. And we interviewed usually multiple people in a family. So we'd uh, put together their story. We did some research on how they were involved in the setting, the local setting they were involved in, uh, the land deals that they were caught up in and what that meant for them and their eventual dispersion across Australia. So that's how I became interested in personal history and come you know, a number of years later, after I've been a stay-at-home mum in Silicon Valley for some time, I cast about for something that would uh, that wasn't a 40-hour-week corporate job because my husband was travelling a lot at that time. And with three kids, I really needed to be around. So I found that getting into personal history was the answer, and I've really enjoyed it so far. That's interesting. So when you were doing this project, it, it was really doing the genealogy that drew you in. But then with the oral history interviews, I, I assume that you were, it went far beyond genealogy. Then you were actually talking about the stories. Were, were they mostly stories that people knew about their ancestors or was it also about their own lives? The oral history project was very personal. Um, I guess, yes, it was about the genealogy. I tried to meet people who perhaps knew about my grandfather Um There was a lot of old Welsh people still living in the Chibut Valley in Argentina. To me, there's three legs of our family history stool. There is firstly the genealogical branch, which is the names, the dates, the places they were born, etc. The second part, more increasingly, is the DNA. Um, That's become very popular recently and it connects us to different people that we never even knew we were related to. And the third part of that is the family stories. So once we tracked down the individuals uh, in Australia, we did speak to them about their memories. Uh, Some of these people were quite elderly. Uh, I think our eldest was about 92. They told us their memories of coming across in the ship from Argentina to Australia. Uh, Some of their children told us their parents' memories of what they were told of family stories in Argentina and why they came from Wales and why they left Argentina to come to Australia. So it was very personal. We also included a uh, short genealogical tree in the in the, each family chapter. And then I drew a relationship map of all the Welsh Patagonians because most of them knew each other, married into each other's family, or came together on the same ship, except, of course, my family. It's interesting that you bring up um, DNA, so the genealogical DNA testing, because I um, I just released an episode about that topic. And one of the things that we were talking about with that episode was um, this difference between our, our genetic history and our cultural history. And they don't overlap perfectly. Um, and it sounds like what you were doing with your interviews and with finding these groups of people in the relationship map, um, to me, that sounds really thrilling because um, 
yes, you might match somebody's DNA, but you're not necessarily going to inherit, you're definitely not going to inherit all of the DNA from all of your ancestors. So by mapping it out on a relationship map, they're actually seeing where those real family and more um, heavily cultural relationships are. And and, you know, it's sad that, that your family wasn't part of that, but what a gift that you gave for everybody that was involved. Right. Yes, I agree. I think that's right. And DNA is fairly recent too. So uh, genealogy can be quite mind-boggling. I'm sure a lot of your listeners understand this. Trying to keep straight who's who in the zoo, like who's related to who, it just got me too much. So um, having a graphic kind of background in art as well, I decided to map it out and it, it worked really well. And then what was the end product? This was a, a book. Was it? A, was this an academic project or was this something that people could buy at a bookstore? It was a little bit of both. Uh, because an academic from a university was involved, we did manage to get funding from academia to go ahead. I mean, how many people would actually fund a project about the oral history of Welsh Patagonians in Australia? Not too many. And I must admit, the readership is fairly limited, but everyone involved did buy a book and it it has been available on Amazon. It isn't a book. It's more like a tome. It's 400 pages. It's completely indexed, cross-referenced with maps. So it, it was a project. And how long did the whole project take? I can't tell you <laughs> because we'd all die of fright. <laughs> it took a while. It took a while. Yeah. The The one thing we did back then uh, in the 90s, it, it was in the 90s, It um, we had to transcribe every interview. And with 65 mm. people, that took a fairly long time, getting our act together and then life intervened, as it always does. So it took longer than I had thought it might. Mm. But that's okay too. I, I had, you know, long before I decided to go into this profession, I was a stay-at-home mom, well, mostly stay-at-home mom with my three kids, and they were little. And I decided to do a story about my my grandmother, who was living, and she was very healthy. And um, and I, I will never admit to anybody how long it took me, because it was we're talking years rather than months totally. and it was a video project but it was a project of love and it was you know a way for my kids to get to know their great grandma better and um and I would not trade any of that time but it also made me realize then years later when I decided to become a life story professional that I was going to do books and not videos because even though the video was really fun I knew that that wasn't where I could shine um as a professional Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that actually leads me into the next question, which is, um, so with your, with your business, you do it all, you do books, video, audio, and I'm wondering, do you have a favorite medium? And if so, why is it your favorite? So the reason I do it all isn't completely, um, up to me. I ad when I first started the business, I advertised in a local, uh, newspaper about me being a personal historian. So one fellow picked up the paper and thought, aha, I've found someone to help me digitise my letter collection. Another fellow picked up the paper and thought, oh, great, I've got someone who's finally going to sit down and record my stories. Another woman picked up the paper and said, great, I can get someone to video my father while interviewing him. So personal historian means different things to different people. Since I've been a podcaster, I kind of like the medium of um, audio, I 
I think it's important to capture one's voices. Uh, and the only caveat to that is that when I listen to my own family's voices without them being there, without looking at their face, without a video, it feels a, dis, a bit discombobulating. It's, it's a mm. strange experience to hear my, my father who's passed on talking without actually seeing his face. So I, I do like audio, but I also like video. Yeah, I've, I've had that same experience because in the past couple of years, both of my parents have died and um, I had done some interviews with my mom and after she died, probably maybe a month after or so, I thought it would be a comforting thing to play some of these interviews for my kids. Um, and, you know, my kids aren't little, they're, they're all teenagers or beyond. Um, and I thought, you know, they'll hear their grandma's voice just a, a little bit of it and um it i was i was dead wrong on that they were absolutely not ready to hear her voice um it, partly because she died of dementia she had alzheimer's and when i had done the initial interviews she was still very cogent she was you know she spoke well um she was, had a little bit of confusion but she still sounded like the grandma that you know the the healthy grandma and to have it was jarring. It was jarring for my kids. Um, they didn't know that I had these interviews. And when I put them on, um, they, you know, they wanted me to turn it off right away. So I, I hear you. I, I think we all react differently. But I also think that the voice is incredibly powerful. And when we're ready, you know, when we do lose somebody that we love, if we do have their voice recorded, to be able to, to turn to that when we're ready, I think is it's an amazing it's an amazing thing. It's an amazing gift to have um, just the sound of that voice because it is so evocative of the whole person. You know, I, I think this is a, a really good point that you made about running an ad and that ad meant whatever it needed to mean to the readers who were interested. Um, and I think it's so important at the very beginning when we're starting off as a life story professional to to be open to not, you know, being a generalist and not locking ourselves into certain specialties. And it sounds like you really hit on a good way of doing that. And you you just rolled with the punches when when somebody had something that they needed help with, you just you said yes. Is that right? Yes. But mind you, it was totally serendipitous. I did not plan that. <laughs> well, sometimes we get some lucky breaks. Um, you Now, in a previous conversation, you had told me about uh, a big Navy project. And I think that was a result of that same ad in the community newspaper. Is that correct? Yes. Well, I must have struck a nerve in the community because it was um, uh, my first four clients were all men from the Navy who were Air Force pilots. And what kind of projects did you do for them? So it was uh, listening to a fellow tell his stories. I recorded them with a portable digital recorder. I made sure that I tested it before I got there and knew how to work it and the sound quality was good and the batteries were fresh and the SD card was completely reformatted. Uh, and after I spoke to him, I had his notes transcribed and I drafted those into a book for him. A second fellow had written letter who had he had a collection of letters that his own father had written to his father and mother when he was in college and starting out work. So it's basically the equivalent of you know our email digest today. 
because they were handwritten letters, he wanted them uh, preserved. So I scanned them, preserved them, um, numbered them, and put them in a collection for him. Then I took a few select uh, letters and put them in a book for him. It was interesting in that project because the voice that the son used towards his mother was a totally different voice than he used towards his father. So I published two chapters of the book. One was the letters that um, he himself wrote to his mother and the other ones are letters between the father and the son. So that was a very Mm. nice project. Uh, Another fellow had photographs, boxes and boxes and boxes of photographs uh, in frames that were free, just in envelopes, there were negatives. They dated back from the 1800s. They were in all sorts of frames, all sorts of albums, stapled, glued, and he wanted something done with them. His kids, he asked his children whether they would want the photographs and they all shied away from it probably because they didn't really know what was in there. They probably didn't know what they needed to do with them. But because they had such a long and distinguished heritage, uh, he felt it was important to do something with them. So I uh, got that job and digitised his whole collection, put the photographs into little plastic sleeves, archival safe boxes, and gave him back three boxes in place of his seven That's a gift that he is truly giving to his children because when we have heaps and heaps of the artifacts, you know, the the photos, um, video recordings, it it can be overwhelming. I can understand why the kids were shying away initially because if there's – if they have not been curated in any way, it's almost – it's almost like you're passing on a burden to your children, particularly if they don't know, you know, if the if the – Photos have not been properly labeled. Um, they don't know who they're looking at. So what he did was he he saved them from from the trash pile, probably. Totally. The examples you just gave, they're three very different projects. Was there an element of fake it till you make it? Or did were you confident in, in all of your skills as you accepted these jobs? Did you have to kind of work through it and figure out how you were doing things? With the speaking to the veteran, there was no problem there. There was no I mean, I'd already done this so many times before that that was a fairly easy task. Um, With the digitising, I had to locate the latest uh, technology, but it was a fairly simple process. Um, It's just that you have to have an open mindset when it comes to figuring out how to do the project itself. I did consult a paper conservationist who happens to live uh, near, near where I do and I spoke to them about how to uh, preserve some of the more um, frail kind of photos and letters and that was of help. Uh, but I've done enough scanning in the past that I was felt fairly confident. It was just that whole nomenclature part of it, how do you name the photos, How do you put them together? And when you've got seven huge boxes full of things, there's no way you can pull all the photographs and put them on the table and start that way, which is how we like to kind of do digitization projects. You do the hunt and gather. You hunt all the photos, you gather them together and put them out and see what you've got. So I had to take it step by step, um, taking photos out one album at a time, naming those, scanning them properly to uh, archival quality, 
making sure I numbered them on the back with archivally safe pencils and putting them in a way that I could easily access them later. I did do a quality assurance step. I put that in at the end where I checked all the photographs against my digitised collection to make sure that they were in order, to make sure that all the information was gathered. And in fact, the process was so interesting that I managed to put together his complete family tree. I think I missed out one fellow, but he died fairly young. Uh, So that was my approach. It was just trying to be flexible, trying to think of it as a system, uh, being open to what's in front of you and kind of running with it organically almost. Yeah, I spoke with, um, on a previous episode, I spoke with um, Marty McNabb, and she um, she has uh, memories out of the box. So her, she is a life story professional as well, but what she does is um, – much like what you're talking about. So she'll, she deals with the physical artifacts, the things that people have lying in boxes and that, you know, they want them preserved. And I thought it was very interesting that she said, um, you know, you have to be systematic about it. You have to have good organizational skills, but you also have to have a sense of intuition of where these things, what the story is telling you behind the things. And it sounds like you did some of that yourself. I mean, um, was the initial project meant to include a family tree or was that something that you just realized that you could provide with a, with a client because of everything that was in front of you? I think it's um, it goes to Marty's point that you do have to have good, good organizational skills. So if I was to curate these photographs, was I had to identify whether this is great Auntie Norma or whether this was Cousin Betty. I had to figure out in my own mind who was who. So it wasn't actually just for the benefit of the client that I put the family tree together. I'm pretty sure they're aware, you know, mostly of their family tree. But what I was able to do was use it as my guide for organising photos into folders digitally so that they were much easier to track. I think adding on to Marty's approach, I think you just sometimes have to be brave and and be very clear with the client exactly what their needs are. So my instructions were, look, you need to organise it. Just get it done, whatever it takes, get it done. I don't want the photo albums. I don't want the um, the picture frames anymore. I just want them digitised, sorted and kept So I had fairly broad instructions. So I was able to take the photos out of the albums, but only with permission from the client. So again, I had to be kind of brave and tread into waters that, you know, we see these photo albums and we think, oh, what a shame to pull them apart. But I think in the long run, it's better because I don't think the paper was archivally safe. The photos wouldn't have survived another 100 years. I'm dealing with that with a client right now who has you can tell that he and his wife had spent hours and hours gathering and collecting all of their photos and documents, and they put them all in these plastic sleeves, like the, the kind that you, you would put a report in if you're a school kid, or I, I guess business people do it too. So just the cheap plastic sleeves. And there are dozens of albums full of these and it just it makes my heart a little bit sick you know because that's he's not interested in having those um converted into something that's a little more archi- archivally sound he he wants to have a book done um but you can see where it's all of that work is 
going to come to naught, um, you know, maybe not this generation, but certainly fairly soon. So yeah, and, and that actually makes me think of, you know, you're, you're talking about how you have to sort of tread into waters and, and just be brave with doing stuff. Do you find with the people that have been contacting you, do you find that they already know pretty much what they want? Or are you also their guide to let them know what their options are? So, you know, if a man has a a whole bunch of letters. Do you, was it your suggestion to create a book with some of the letters or, um, so did you take it a step further than what he had initially contacted you about? So in both instances, clients had a pain point. They had a burden. They had all these photos and just wanted them dealt with. They've got these letters and they want them in a book, but don't know how or where to start. So they do have a general idea in mind about what they want. The client with the letters, he knew he wanted a book and I was happy to do that, but he didn't know what was to go into the book. And it wasn't until I pointed out that his father wrote in different voice to both his mother and his father that we thought it was a good idea to um, put them separately. And then we realised he had a good amount of letters for each of his father's university years. And he decided that he would donate a book of the letters to his father's alma mater. So that meant that we put his his letters uh, by year into a book. So what his freshman year was like, what happened during his sophomore year, what happened when he went overseas on his European tour and his letters back home of that summer, what his senior year was like. And were you annotating the letters? No. We decided after we looked at them, that it was best to keep them, to copy them just as they were and put them in the book just as they were so people could read directly the writing. The scans were pretty good. The letters were in very good condition, so we were able to um, do that. I have I tried to find examples on Amazon, for example, of books where letters had been published in their native handwriting, but I couldn't too, find too many examples but we did not annotate them at all. And you and so you did you also did not have them transcribed. You 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 published the book with the images of the scans of the photo. Yes, of we the did letters. not have them transcribed. They were just published as is. Right. Well, I can see two advantages to that. One, it's it takes an awful lot of time. So the the amount the investment would have skyrocketed had you transcribed them all. Um, and then two you know, for family members, I'm sure it's it's a precious thing to see their grandfather or great-grandfather see him expressing himself in his own handwriting. Were they typed or were they handwritten? They were completely handwritten. I think there was a few uh, back in the 30s where um, this fellow's father, who was in a bank job, he wrote back in a typewritten letter. So most of them were handwritten. At the outset, did you know that you were going to be doing this book or was it really just to have all of the letters transcribed so that, or I'm sorry, not transcribed, but have them digitized? He knew he wanted to preserve them and digitize them and he thought he wanted them in a book, but I had to um, show him what letters might go in which book. So I helped curate them. Yeah, that sounds like a really, really good project. I love letters. I you know, I, I find it a challenge to work with for some of the clients that I've worked with who have a lot of letters um, that they've preserved through the years, either ones that they've written or their family members have written. Um, 
I find it a challenge because um, if if we're doing a long form narrative life story, the tone changes so much. So when we're writing a letter, it's it's you know our immediate it's we're in that immediate period, um, and with the life story books, they're far more reflective. You know, you're reminiscing and you're looking back. So it it can be a challenge to incorporate letters into books, but it's to have bits of them, I think it makes the makes the book so rich because then you can see, you know, you can see how somebody was in their younger years. And like how you're talking about, there's two different voices that that this man was using, whether he was writing to his mom or to his dad. And, you know, we're all like that. My kids call me out on that when I'm on the phone. They they can always guess who I'm talking to on the phone by by the tone of my voice, right? Because we we have different personas for different people. I mean, we're all it's all us, but we address different people in different ways. And so if you're doing a life story book, to be able to access some primary source sources, you know, like letters that they've actually written themselves, I think just makes it, um, it gives more texture to, to a life story book. And the surprising thing for my client was that I was able to deduce so much about his own father's personality. He had no idea that I got to know his father through those letters. He was totally surprised. And did your perception of his father's personality mesh with his own perception of it? Oh, completely. Yeah. So you must have a good inner ear for for being able to hear those kinds of things and build a picture in your mind of what somebody's like too. I think one of the most important things being a personal historian is being able to have that rapport with anyone you know, with being able to meet complete strangers and help them tell their story. I agree. I think that's probably the biggest thing that draws people into this profession too, is having, being able to establish rapport with with pretty much just anybody, but also having that active curiosity, you know, wanting to dig down a little bit deeper to get to know somebody. Yes, I'd like to shift gears here a little bit because I think that you, um, just from some other conversations that you and I have had, I, I think that you're probably really good at the marketing aspect of being creative, thinking outside of the box with marketing, you know, having this ad in the community newspaper, I'd like to start with that. But then there are a few other things that you've done that I would like you to address if if you're okay with it. But so starting again with that ad, what kind of ad was it? Because I know that sometimes if we write too short as personal historians or life story professionals, if it's just like a little business card type ad, that usually fails. That that will flop because people won't know at all what the service is that you're that you're advertising. So how did you what did your ad look like in this community newspaper, the one that netted you so many projects? So the ad wasn't very big, uh, but I made sure I had a picture of myself, happy, smiling me. I had in big letters personal historian. I had my email and phone number. I also put in the location. I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area, but that's a huge area. So I made sure that uh, it wasn't just the city I was living in at the time. And then I gave people uh, a clue. I said, want to give the perfect gift this year? Get personal. Tell them your life history. And then I Mm. mentioned, let's record your audio, video, and write your life stories into a book or movie. So they had some clue as to what was going on. Then I had my business name. I made sure there was plenty of white space. I am an artist at heart, so I made sure that visually it looked appealing and as plain as possible. 
I didn't want to have too much colour, too many lines. I wanted the message to be the most important takeaway of the ad. Well, it sounds like you fit exactly the right elements into it. Um, I, I made a mistake earlier on in my career where I took out well, twice <laughs> I did this. Um, I took out a very expensive ad. The company that did the programs for the ballet, the Kansas City Ballet, um, the there's the repertory theater, several other um, arts institutions. And if you took an ad out with them, they ran your ad in the programs for all of these different institutions. And it it, every time they had an event. And I thought, this is perfect. These are my, you know, these are the people that I want to be marketing to. But I, both times that I did it, I only had, I had, I believe a picture of myself, my company name, and a very, very short tagline, which I think at the time was, um, turn your life's history into a life story. That meant nothing to anybody. And I I think I got one or two calls and zero jobs from that. Um, and what I learned was if you, you know, for me, what has worked is taking out a, an ad with a little bit more real estate and doing just what you were describing, um, putting in what the service is. Because if you write personal history and you leave it at that, people are not going to know what you're talking about. Um and so have you, how many times did that ad run and have you done any subsequently? So that ad ran for four weeks over December period. I took out a subsequent ad in a different local newspaper and I had uh, not very many responses. One was a fellow who wanted me to write in a humorous way about the stories he used to tell of his son when he was young. He had a son who was a bit like mine, to be honest. He was into everything. He was he was dexterous. He was nimble. He'd get into everything and end up in situations kind of like a Dennis the Menace character. And the, his stories were totally funny. Uh, and I don't think I did a very good job at that. Another woman... She had. She looked at my ad and she wanted to tell her story about her very strange illness that she never quite had diagnosed. Unfortunately, she couldn't uh, focus for long enough periods at her computer to type it, so she got me in. I thought I would talk to her and that I could record her, but that was taxing for her as well. So we never quite came to the right way to help her record her story. Another woman also wanted me to digitise uh, letters and perhaps to transcribe them, but she wasn't really quite ready to see the value in the project. You know, you never know, too, the, the ads that we have out there, the print ads, you could very easily get a call from somebody a year or two or three later, you know, that they've had their ad sitting on the kitchen counter or tucked away someplace and... And then it's time. It's, you know, when they originally saw the ad, it wasn't time for them to do it. There was something standing in the way. Um, but sometimes it just takes a really long time for this idea to marinate. You know, we, we have a very long sales cycle in some instances. One fellow contacted me six months after one of my ads ran. Yeah, I've, I have literally had somebody contacting 
contact me three years after. So having that initial sit down sales conversation with them, and then not getting hired until three years later. And that's just the way we work, especially for these projects that there's, you know, there is something you and I know that there's something very pressing. And that is there is going to come a day for sure when you will not be able to tell your story. But it's not it's not like April 15th tax day where where there is a hard and fast deadline that you know ahead of time. You also told me that you had written some letters to estate attorneys and you got you had some success with that. Can you can you tell us a little bit about how that went? Sure. Um, I took a hiatus from my business while I moved house and just getting into reboot stage, I thought I really needed to do some more marketing. One uh, type of project that personal historians can help people with is writing legacy letters. So legacy letters are ethical wills. They're not wills appropriating, you know, giving away your, your estate and breaking up your estate to give it to different family and friends. An ethical will is bringing together your own experiences and passing those on, perhaps usually in a letter form. So it's passing on your experiences passing on your wishes for your children, for your grandchildren, you know, sharing with them your experiences in life, how you manage to be the person you are, how you manage to get over those humps, uh, how you problem solved, uh, what motivated you to take that career, why you, you know, came to California. Um, so those ethical wills are a smaller kind of project. They don't usually take as long but they are still pretty important for people to do that. And so I decided to write to attorneys and uh, let them know what I was doing. So I uh, just went through the white pages and, and wrote a list of attorneys and their addresses, drafted a letter explaining uh, my job, what I do, how I can help their clients. And I did get uh, an, a, an attorney write back to me and asked if I could give a talk to their clients at a, they normally have a monthly gathering for their clients, an educational thing usually about not necessarily wills, but certainly to do with getting older and making sure they choose the right care and health insurance and so on. So I was a guest speaker for one month to talk about legacy letters. And that's a wonderful way of building a business too, because even though the lawyer wasn't hiring you to do a, a legacy letter for one of his clients, he helped you amplify your message. So it's that whole one-to-many effect, right? You talk to him, and then he brought you in front of a whole group of people, and that just sends the tendrils out, right? And you don't know what you're going to get from that. Speaking from my own experience, because I've done some some talking with or some um, presentations for estate attorneys as well. Sometimes it nets you nothing, but sometimes you can wait long enough and... Um, and you'll have those people start calling you back once they get into a certain point with their own clients, you know, that, that they're representing as their attorney. Um, and estate attorneys are, it's, it's a good avenue to go because they're trying to have a value add to bring to their clients and make their relationship with them less transactional, you know, bring them something of greater value rather than yeah, we're going to help you with your taxes or whatever it is. Right. And this attorney had a specific way of doing that, adding value to his clients. 
by having a monthly, you know, guest speaker talk to them about different topics through the year. Oh, I think I misunderstood. So you, so you were not speaking to another group of lawyers. You were actually speaking to his clients. Totally, to his clients. Yes. Oh boy, you know what, Peta? That's uh, that's amazing because that can be a really hard um, invitation to get. I mean, in general, the estate attorneys are very protective of their clients. So you must have really wowed him um, for him to actually bring you and present you in front of, of the clients. That's that's great. I'm impressed with that. Well, strangely enough, I wouldn't have got the speaking request if it hadn't been for the attorney's own stance um, on ethical wills as well. So this estate attorney has a separate folder in his client's binder and it's called Love Letters, but it's never been filled up. So he understands that people should write love letters. He encourages them to write what he calls love letters, which are ethical wills or legacy letters, letting letting their grandkids and kids know about their life. He's always encouraged his clients to do that, but they never do. And he's never found anyone to help them with that. His mother, who was also an attorney, was very clear in her purpose um, and she also thought there was a lot of benefit to encouraging people to write ethical wills. So basically, it was really a matter of me finding an attorney whose values coincided with mine. I like that. So I'm just curious, how old roughly is he? Uh, The attorney, I'm kind of guessing. (laughs) He's in his 40s or 50s. Uh, the reason I'm asking is because um, when I have talked to other, you know, when I've talked to groups of attorneys and presented them with this idea of either legacy letters or life story books for their clients, the younger ones almost never get it. And the older ones almost always do. I, I think that we have to, you, you have to come to a certain point in your life. Um, and for some people that happens at an earlier date than for others. But in general, what I found is for for them to not just see it, for these attorneys to not just see it as um, a marketing tool, you know, to to help strengthen the ties between their their clients and finding new clients, but actually to see, like you said, to have that value system coincide with your own and really see see it as an important thing for families to be doing. Um, I, I, I think that sometimes the the attorneys need to, you know, they need to reach that point in life where they're actually recognizing that just like everybody. I mean, just like any of the clients that we serve, the, if it's the children that approach us to have their, the stories done of their parents, generally it's not going to be a 25 year old who's going to be asking us to, to capture their, their parents' life story. Usually it's going to be somebody in their fifties. I mean, I have had people in their forties and I did actually have somebody who was 28. I was, I was pretty impressed. I think those are the outliers though. So we're getting kind of short on time, and I do. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your um, your podcast. You and I, coincidentally, we started our podcasts. I think probably right around the same period. But you're serving a different market than I am. So this podcast that we're that you're being a guest on right now is geared for people who are working in the industry of of life stories and personal history. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yours? Certainly. So with rebooting my business last year, I realized that there wasn't a lot of um, digital content published around life story professionals. It's very, it, it's a strange industry because we don't really have a name. We call ourselves personal historians, memoir writers, ghost writers, videographers, but it's very difficult to find one name 
that describes an industry such as medicine or whatever. So I needed to put out some digital content. So I started listening to podcasting podcasts about marketing and how to get out there. And then I realized that there would be no better way to market than to introduce people to personal historians personally by interviewing them and introducing how we work to a group of people who never really heard of us. I mean, people are everywhere. They're attorneys, clients, um, they read newspapers, they listen to podcasts, they're on Instagram, they're on Twitter, they're on Facebook. So it's a matter of really trying to market yourself in various ways that you're comfortable with but where you think your message might resonate. I'm not saying that I'm 100% successful at everything I do, far from it, but I do try and take a fairly broad approach to marketing and I think having a podcast has helped me put the word out there, I guess, about what personal historians do and actually a fairly broad approach to life story professionals in general. So I haven't just interviewed personal historians. I've interviewed um, songwriters who put people's story into song. I interviewed this week an illustrator. He was involved in a book uh, that was um, headed up by a personal historian who I also interviewed. And I also interview authors and writers who have gotten over the hump and have taken the step to writing their memoir. So the podcast has really helped me market my business. I haven't listened to all of your episodes yet, but I've listened to plenty. And just like with, with the guests that I have on, when I listen to your your podcast, I'm learning all kinds of things that I would have never thought of. And that's, to me, that is gold, you know, especially when you're in a profession like we are, where so much of our time is spent alone. So, you know, creating the videos or the audios, editing the books, um, you spend a certain amount of time in front of a client, but especially if you're doing a book, so much of that time is spent on your own. And you can very easily get locked into thinking that there's only one way of doing something or that there's, you know, you have one product that you want to really be focusing on. And doing the podcast and listening to your podcast, it just sort of has opened up the world to me of life story professionals. And in particular, I was just listening to that episode. Is it Story Finch or Song Finch? Song Finch. Yes. And people listening to this podcast, you need to go and listen to that episode, especially. Episodes 11 and 12. 11 and 12. Yes. So you'll hear about a woman who has written her own memoir. And then PETA, what you did was incredible. You you took some of her, uh, the bits and pieces of her life story, and you approached this company and had them do what they do, which is create a song that's personalized. So, um, and both episodes are incredible. The one to hear this woman talk about the power of writing her own memoir through poetry, and the other to hear this man talk about his company, where they're he is a life story professional, but he's just working in a, in a medium that I would have never dreamed of, and that is song. So that's where I have benefited the most from having my own podcast and listening to yours, learning new ideas on how we can help people preserve their stories, because we don't have to be limited by our 
by our own imagination. You know, we've got that hive mind going as soon as we're, we're putting this out into the world, we all have different ideas and we can share our ideas and just grow this this profession of, of life story writing and life story recording. Well, what's interesting is that um, my Chamber of Commerce has now asked me to give a, a talk next week about podcasting. So I think I'll make it broader and talk about audio marketing, marketing in audio in this world. I think we need to get the word out there and there's really no better way to do it than through um, our voices. I agree. And particularly if if you are someone who is going to be offering audio services, so life story projects that are in audio, you're showing off what you can do. So yeah, I agree with you. Well, this has been wonderful. Can you just uh, tell everybody where they can get a hold of you? Sure. So my podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, etc. The name of the podcast is called Storical, S-T-O-R-Y-I-C-A-L. Your stories are historical. My website is lifestoryprofessionals.com or you can go to historical.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Peter. Thank you so much, Amy. It's been really fun. And that does it for our interview with Peter Roberts. To recap, an interest in her own family history led Peter to start her life story business several years later. A well-designed ad in a local newspaper brought in several clients, and in this ad, she told readers who she was and what she did, but she kept it general enough so that people saw her according to their own ideas of what a project would look like specifically for them. She stayed adaptable. If she didn't know how to do something, she learned. I think that I'm going to do a short episode soon on print ads, so stay tuned for that. Um, If you have any experience with print ads, good or bad, please let me know, and I'll try to work that into the episode. In general, I think they've gotten a bad rap in our industry. I know quite a few of my colleagues who do not believe in taking out print ads at all, but I've had some success with them, and I think that if we are intentional in how we use them, they can really bring good things. I hope that you found this show helpful, and if you did, please help us spread the word by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Now go out and save someone's story.